Welcome to Grace Church's podcast. This week, we had a guest speaker join us and share a word. The following episode was recorded live during Sunday's service. Our lives, and uh, I've asked John, uh, he's not preaching this morning, but I asked him to come and address you guys and to share anything the Lord might lay on his heart. So can you guys welcome uh, John Rusk as he comes up? I love you, my friend. I'm so glad you're here. And... Well, good morning. I'll just be brief. I want to greet you. This is uh, not a pleasure trip, although I'm really having a good time. I love, I love your city. Having It's been a long time, Jay, since I lived here. Was anybody here in the 80s? 80s? About four of us were alive then, or in this city. And uh, because of that, Springfield is close to my heart. And, and this church, though most of you I don't know, and, but I love this couple your pastors and um, they're, they're they're special to me i enjoy them usually in some other country and we we have st- some stories i want to thank you for uh, most of you may not even wear you contribute to what i do i'm kind of supposed to be retired but i keep going and i go because god provides and I want to say thank you for my wife, Deb, and I. We live over in Texas where I grew up. But I, I really want to thank you for the gift of your pastors to the nations. Uh, I've seen them in action uh, this last trip. Uh, a very impacting word and a ministry. Some things that opened up. I don't think he knows. But he opened up some things that's still percolating. And some African leaders who needed to be taught how to open up. And uh, I, anyway, thank you for that. I'm, I'm looking forward to the word, but God, God did give me something. I'm on assignment. I got some other business I'm doing in town with people. But I, I came over early. I wasn't going to be here today, but I felt like God told me drive over here and, and on assignment, like I do overseas, to discern what the Holy Spirit's doing in the city, what's going on. So is that okay? You understand that language? You know, you, 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 you live in your own place and you get used to the clutter. A visitor can come in and see. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm in that mode. And the Lord gave me a couple things just to impart to you. One, he has more for you. I said again, he has more for you. And it's centered in the critical issue of knowing God better. Paul prayed for the great Ephesian church that was close to him. See, this church is kind of like, to me, what Ephesus was to him. They, were, they had good history. But he wrote to him in chapter 1 and said, I'm praying for you that you might have the spirit of revelation and wisdom that the, the eyes of your, of your heart understanding would be open so that you might know him better. There's a fog of war. Can I put it that way? There's a fog of war over the nation of spiritual conflict, and it's over the city. You ever feel like you're living in a fog? You ever drive in the fog? Oh, you can, you know, everything's obscured. You know you're supposed to go, but you can't really see. And there's a walk of faith in that, but there's a, there's a, there's, there's a, something shutting down our vision or ability. God wants to give vision to you. And he's changed. He's moving. There's change, Pastor. There's changes. He's a change agent in your life. And he's saying you can't settle in. He is on the move and he wants you in on it. You got this? 
So I'm going to pray that prayer for you, and I'm going to give you a little thing that happened in my life some months back. And I'm going to, if you've ever heard the phrase a prophetic act, it's something physically done in demonstration. You see it in the Old Testament where the prophets would do something, like beat arrows on the ground or something to demonstrate. This happened in my life at a season of life where I sensed God wanted to do some new things in my life, but I couldn't get it. I couldn't figure it out. I had parts of the puzzle, but it was just obscure. It was like I was living in a fog. And you can get pretty comfortable in that life. But God wants to blow it away from you. So I was out. I, 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 it's a hobby. I raise chickens and we sell eggs. And uh, so I was going out in the morning chicken place. And imagine with me, I'm going out there to open the hutch, let them out. And I have fruit trees. And in the, in the, in the warmer time, the spiders are, are out there during the night. They make their webs. And you ever go out and then you get in them? So that was happening. I go out there and I forgot about the spiders. And I go under a, to a gate and a big spider fell out of a branch right on my face. Right on my glasses. Okay? You got that image? How's that? Would you like that to happen to you? Well, it does. God brings a little spider, a little attack, a big one sometimes, to get your attention. Well, out of instinct, I swung at it and hit my glasses. And away they went. Into the garden, into the flower beds, into the bushes. I just found them the other day. The chickens found them. Jay, we couldn't find my glasses. I didn't have, it's my old glasses, my old, you know, the old folk glasses, the wire rim. I liked them. But they were dated. Hear me. God gives you things. He gives Grace Church things. But they get dated. There's a shelf life of what he's done. But I couldn't hear what it was. Something strange happened after I knocked my glasses off. They flew away and I couldn't find them and I lived two weeks without them because I have one good eye. And finally I said, I'm going to go get some new glasses. That's these, by the way. But something in the Spirit happened to me. When I got the new glasses, everything God was trying to speak to me for that season of my next season of my life came crystal clear. And the Lord showed me You can't see what God wants for you now because what is old is occupying your vision. You got that? I'm telling you by the word of the Lord, he's moved on and he's got new things to do. But he's asking you in the spirit to knock off your old glasses so you can receive something new. You receive that? So I want you to do something with me. Take your hand. Right or left, whichever you like. Don't hit yourself in the face. In the name of Jesus, I want you to go. That's practice. That's practice. But in doing it, you're saying I'm willing to throw off the old so I can receive the new. Okay? So in the name of Jesus, we have Grace Church. There's history here. But what's old is old. And we knock it off. We throw it away and thank you for the spider that's disturbed us to make us do it. Now bring the new. So you're going to season.
to be open personally and as a church for the things the Lord would want to do. Do you receive that? You receive that? Okay. And then finally, I, I want to take your time, but there's one other thing. Last night I had a crazy experience in the night uh, regarding a physical affliction. It's terrible when you go to bed feeling good and wake up in the night and you're in pain. And God does this. It's, I know it's strange, but he does that with me to, to show me things in the spirit and where I'm at. And then I was praying, the Lord showed me that over, over Springfield in the region, the enemy, this is, a, see, that's what God's doing. This is what the enemy's doing. There's a spirit, sometimes Jesus healed people, but sometimes he rebuked the spirit of infirmity. And there's a spiritual attack of infirmity bringing chronic illnesses and injuries to God's people to stop them from being what God wanted them to be. And I saw that last night. So I'm not talking just about you. I'm talking over the city, all God's people. So on behalf, would you join me? The scriptures say, resist him and he'll flee. Humble yourselves under the hand of the Lord. But let's resist that. It is, how many are having any chronic afflictions and, and illnesses? Raise your hand at me. Okay? Would you like that to get away? Okay, Father, in the name of Jesus... As your children, we're not ignorant of the devices of the enemy. We come together as a people on behalf for the city that we live in and the region. And we come against that spirit of, of affliction and infirmity sent by the devil to torment your people and to keep them from serving you to the fullest of their ability. And we say, be gone. We push you back. We resist you. You must flee in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. That was great. Thank you for sharing that with us and delivering the word of the Lord to us. Appreciate that. I'm excited to introduce Bradley to you. You guys know Bradley. I don't usually get to hear Bradley speak. Um, I'm usually out of town or out of the country or somewhere else, so I'm glad to be present to hear him this morning. Uh, him and Mark, he had been in the church almost nine years. I remember back when he was a uh, an intern here in Bible college and um, man, we got him to do everything. Like, and he's done about everything there is to do in the church. And he's so faithful. They do a great job leading our, our uh, youth ministries. We're so thankful for them. Um, can you guys welcome Bradley as he comes up and ministers a word this morning? Love you, my friend. Thanks, Pastor Jay. Uh, it's, always a, it's always an honor to get asked to do this. Um, Jay always likes to make the comment that it's, it's God's stage and not his, but Lord knows if something goes wrong up here, they're not going to be calling out to God, they're going to be calling him. So he's <laughs> taking his life into his hands, handing me a microphone. Uh, so I respect that about him. Um, so we're going we're gonna to be talking about um, a couple of topics today. Actually, healing is going to be coming into it quite a bit, which is interesting that, that John had those comments about healing today. But when, when I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about uh, how interesting it is that Sometimes things get, come to be known for things that they, they didn't start out as. They, the, the, the claim to fame that they have is, is not what they, they started out as originally. So when I say the company Nintendo, you probably think of a lot of different things. Um, you might think of the, the new Nintendo Switch, which is a great mobile platform if you haven't played it yet. A-class games, great travel. Um, Nintendo doesn't sponsor me, but if they want my PayPal, I'll give it to them. 
Um, thinking back a little bit further, you might think of the Nintendo Wii, the Nintendo 64, uh, the, the Super Nintendo, the Nintendo NES, you know, all the way back. They've got all these great games, all these uh, uh, great consoles. But the company of Nintendo actually was founded in, in, in 1889 in Japan. It was a small company. They handmade playing cards. It was a Japanese playing card games. They had individuals who hand-painted those cards and, and produced them in, in packs. Um, took off. It was very popular. They, they started growing. But they handmade playing cards for like 65 years, all the way up into the 50s and 60s. And it wasn't until then they started making novelty toys. They started making kids' toys. Um, and then eventually in the 70s, they started making electronics. But when I said Nintendo, you didn't think of 65 years of handmade playing cards. You, you thought of, you know, you thought of the electronics that we know from the last 30 or 40 years. And it's interesting to me that that, that can happen. When, when something starts out one way, it, it can come to be known for something different. And, and I think the church is in a similar boat. That we started out one way, and, and unfortunately, a, a lot of the, the opinion that we have about us nowadays is, is kind of negative. We kind of get attributed with some negative thoughts. A lot of times um, when, when people, especially people who aren't in the church, think of Christians, you know, they, they think of people who are judgmental or, or two-faced. Sometimes they think, they talk about greed. They think, oh, Christians only care about your money. You know, they just want to shake that plate in front of you every time you go. And, and it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that that's, those are some of the attributes that are attributed to us. You know, the, the, the hope would be that we'd be known as the perfect opposite of that, that um, we would be loving and, and giving of grace, that we would be generous people with time and money and talents and, you know, whatever it is that, that we have, whatever we have more of, that we would be willing to give to, to anybody who might need it. And unfortunately, that's not the general opinion, I think, of the church today. And, and Marky and I have a an interesting heart for people who've been hurt by the church. Both of us have had some church experiences that, that were very negative, um, that I think could have led to um, us walking away from the church or walking away from our faith even. Um, but both of us, in our very different experiences, realized that, that the church hadn't harmed us and God hadn't harmed us. It was, it was a couple of bad apples. A couple of bad experiences of, of individuals you know, gave us these experiences. But, but when we hear stories about that, of people being belittled or taken advantage of or, or not welcomed and loved or, or just plain bullied by people in the church, we understand that. We, we, we get that. And, and the, the thing that I think is is so unfortunate about it. One of the things I almost always say during those conversations is, it all goes back to Jesus. If you see somebody in a, in a church setting or in a, in a representative way of God, and they're doing something that you don't think Jesus would do, at that point, they're probably not doing a very good job of representing Jesus or the church to you at that point. They're, they have stepped out of that role as, as representative, and, and they've, they've become human again. And and I think that's, I think it's so imperative to understand that, that, that we have to keep looking at the life of Christ and, and, and the, the world that Jesus lived in to really understand and appreciate um, what it is that he was doing and what it is that, that he wants for us. And, and we as Christians in the modern church are, are now tasked with, with trying to correct some of these negative attributes that have been, that have been given to us. We have to actively work towards reversing some of those opinions about us, and, and it's stacked against us. It's not fair, per se, but, but that's the role that we have to play, that, that we have to try to change those opinions about people. And, and as a church, I 100% believe we can. 
It's not an impossible task. It's difficult. It's going to be a very slow, one person at a time, building relationship and connecting to people process, but it can be done, 100%. And, and again, I think it all goes back to Jesus. We have to look at the life of Jesus and the way that he lived and the way that he interacted with people to, to understand how it is that we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to do when we're interacting with people. So the name of my sermon today is, is The Pragmatic Prophet. And what I want to talk about today, something that I think the church is getting better at, is building a more loving and welcoming environment. And I think that's really important. Obviously, we, we, have to, we have to make space for people who aren't in the church to join the church if we want them to come. And, and obviously, there's a catch-22 there that we have to make a space that's welcoming, but at the same time doesn't condone sin. You know, we're, we're not compromising our biblical standards to make people more comfortable, but at the same time, we are saying that wherever you are in your walk of life, you're welcome here. We want to connect you to God and, and help you build that relationship. And through that relationship, your life will probably experience some changes, but we're not here to judge you or tell you to, to walk away from certain things. That's between you and God. And so we, we make that space for people. And I think churches are getting better at that. And I think that's phenomenal. I think it's wonderful that, that we're trying to build more seeker-friendly experiences for people walking in off the street, no experience, lots of negative experience with churches where they can be more comfortable here in church. Um, but when one of the things I think that churches still struggle with is finding practical application for love. Building a loving environment and, and, and truly wanting the best for people is wonderful, and, and it's very important. It's a huge first step. But having practical application for that love, being willing to meet that person where they are and try to find and meet real needs is something that I think the church still struggles with. I feel like the church is still a little hands-off at times, and, and that's something that I think Jesus did not display in his life. I want to talk about three miracles that Jesus performed today and some of the very practical things that he did for the individuals that he did those miracles for that, that truly changed their lives in ways that culturally I think are going to be difficult for us to understand. We're going to try to, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of the cultural bridge where you, you take the Bible and you take us today in modern society and you try to bridge that cultural gap, that they were experiencing things very differently than we are and we're experiencing things very differently than they did. But when we see the cultural um, settings of some of these things, we can understand those, those principles a lot better. So the first one that I want to I talk about is the, the raising of the widow's son. It, it takes place in Luke chapter 7, starts in verse 11. Um, we'll have it up here on the screens. If you want to turn to it, feel free. But um, it's a, there's not a lot of setup for it. Jesus is traveling. He's coming into a new town, and, and he sees something as he's coming into the town. And we'll, we'll pick it up in, starting in verse 11. Soon afterward, he came to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through all of Judea and through the surrounding country. So, obviously, a huge miracle. Uh, someone who was dead is not anymore. Um, but the thing that's really interesting about this verse is it doesn't really talk a lot about the man. It doesn't really talk much about the, the person who was dead. Um, the only thing that Jesus says to the man is, is arise, whereas he addresses the mother. On his way in, he, he immediately addresses the mother. And the verse I want to focus on in here is, is in verse 12. It says that he is the only son of his mother, that she is a widow, and that a great crowd was forming. 
So culturally, in this era, it was very difficult for women to hold professions. Typically, women did not hold professions. Um, so when a, a woman would, were to be widowed, uh, her children or her siblings, depending on how old she was, would then be tasked with taking care of her. They would provide for her, assure that she has a place to live, food, clothing, all that sort of thing. Obviously, she would contribute in any way that she could, but holding a profession, earning wages, and, and being able to provide for herself would have been very difficult. Um, if you've been with us here at Grace, we talked about Esther not long ago. We talked about her and Ruth going to the fields and collecting the gleanings, and, and they were, you know, kind of having to live off of the charity of the people who owned those fields. What they left behind was for the poor, and they could collect those and survive on those. So for a, a woman to be widowed, <clears throat> for a woman to be widowed and then lose her son, her only son, culturally, this is a really big blow for her. This is something that's really going to change her life. And, and obviously, it's a tragedy anytime a parent has to bury a child. But I think the, the reference of the great, the, the great crowd that was following them was a, a cultural recognition of, of how tragic this was on multiple levels. Obviously, this man is dead. This woman has lost her son. But her economic situation just took a really, really big turn. And, and that's going to be a really intense experience for her. And when Jesus comes into the scene, he addresses her. He immediately speaks to the widow, and he, he makes her kind of the pinnacle of the miracle, that while this man is, was dead and is now alive, the person's life who is really changed in, 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 a, in an economic way is the widow. And, and he has just returned her life back to the way that she knew it, back to, to being provided for, to, to having someone to watch out for her. And, and obviously, the, this miracle is great for this man because he was dead and is now alive. But this miracle is great for this woman. She has her son back. She has her livelihood back. She has her provision back. She is being cared for again. And it's a very practical thing for her um, outside of the emotions of losing a child that, that economically she is now being cared for. And I, and I think that Jesus was aware of that. I think he was very, um, uh, very aware of the fact that, that her life was about to change and, and he wanted to change that for her. And I think it's very interesting that he addresses her directly in it. The second one that I want to talk about is the healing of the paraplegic man. Um, it's in Luke, starting in, or in chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Um, uh, Jesus is, is traveling. He's speaking. Um, he goes to a home and begins to preach there. Um, there's there's a huge crowd. Lots of people crowd in. And uh, there's, there's no room to get in. And, and we, we pick it up with these men uh, bringing this paraplegic man. Um, on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there and had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some of the men were bringing a, on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst of Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say? I'm sorry. Why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. They glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So there's a lot going on in this. I apologize. That was kind of lengthy, but I wanted to get you know, the, whole, the whole crux of it. So there's a lot going on here, right? Jesus is at this house. It's packed. These guys have so much faith. They've, they've ripped a hole in this 
poor homeowner's roof. Nobody talks about who's got to fix the roof at the end of it. And, and this man gets lowered down in front of Jesus. It's very dramatic. Obviously, everybody's attention is immediately turned to this. And the first thing that Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. And, and obviously, that's, that's great, but it's not exactly what the friends probably had in mind when they lowered this man into this house. And when I was trying to think of analogy, I, I thought of a, a kid on their birthday. Uh, imagine with me for a second that, that you're an eight-year-old, okay? And it's your birthday, and everyone's at the house, and there's balloons and streamers and hats and a pinata, and everybody's having a great time, and you're opening presents, and, and you're having a blast, but everyone's got—you've you, got your eye as an eight-year-old over in the corner— where Uncle Jack is standing. Because Uncle Jack hasn't given you his present yet, and everyone knows Uncle Jack's got a little bit of money, right? He's not married. He's got a good job. He knows you want that Huffy bike. I don't know if kids still ride Huffy bikes. They were a big deal when I was a kid. He knows you want that bike, and you're, I mean, you're really, really hoping that, that he's got that bike for you. And he starts to come up from the corner. He's got an envelope in his hand, and he hands it to you. And he says, happy birthday. And you tear open the envelope. You're hoping inside is a note that says, go out to the garage, go out to the driveway, backyard, whatever. Somewhere he's got this bike hidden for you. And you unfold it, and it's got a bank logo at the top. And, and he's opened a college fund in your name, and he's put $1,000 in it. And your parents are freaking out. They're very excited about this. But you as an 8-year-old are kind of struggling with the tangibility of that. You, you can't really appreciate that. It's a very valuable gift. You understand that. But at the same time, you don't, you don't feel it. You can feel a bike. You know, you can feel the handlebars. And that's this man. He gets lowered into this house. He has this huge expectation, this hope and faith. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And he's just like, oh, wow. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. <laughs> And it's not that he's not appreciative because it's a great miracle, but it's not tangible. It's not what he came for. It's not his expectation. And, and it's very difficult for him to, to feel that change, the, the, the practicality of, of it. And Jesus goes on with it and, and goes on to heal the man. And in our story, maybe Uncle Jack throws you a helmet after all and he's got your bike. But, but as a young person, as a kid, as, as this paralyzed man, I don't think they didn't appreciate the gravity of the first miracle, but at the same time, the, the tangibility and the practicality of the first miracle wasn't quite there. And Jesus could have easily said in this story, hey, what's 10 years of paralysis compared to an eternity in heaven? We're talking about drops in the bucket, man. You've got to look at the bigger picture. But at the same time, Jesus knew every day this man was waking up, someone who loved him was carrying him to a street, and he was begging all day, hoping that the charity of the passerbys would sustain him. That was his tomorrow. That was his reality. And, and Jesus wanted to address both eternity and reality. He wanted to talk about today, too. And, and when we get caught up in, in the hearts and souls and the ministry of God, so much so that we lose focus of the day-to-day of the individuals that we're talking to, we lose focus of what Jesus did in this story. He recognized eternity. It's not that the first miracle wasn't great, because it was. It was far greater of the two. But the tangibility of tomorrow was much more present with this man than, than the future of eternity. And that's one of the reasons I love that story is it has both. They're paired. That Jesus cares more and understands that the eternity is more important, but tomorrow is just as important to this man regardless. The last story that I want to talk about is, is, in, um, is in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 24. Uh, and it's the story of the woman with the issue of blood. And uh, 
Jesus is actually on his way to heal someone else. He's traveling with a big crowd. His disciples are there. People are there. He's done several miracles already. He's, you know, he's attracting a lot of attention. And so we, we pick it up with him in the street with all of these people uh, in verse 24. And a great crowd followed him and the throng began, uh, about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt that her body was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who has touched my garments? And the disciple said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So we're going to talk a little more about culture here. So two major aspects of this miracle, in my opinion, are the fact that she's a woman. Again, we, we see a, a, a lesser standard of living for women. Um, the, the attention that she would have drawn, the help that she would have gotten, the, the physicians that she would have had care for her may not have been the, the top notch. It may not have been as good as it could have been. And you don't have to go very far back in history to see some very bizarre medical practices. It's not like we were masters of the human body in first century AD. So the, the things that she was probably being told to do may have been a little chaotic, especially when things weren't working. Things were probably getting more abstract and more obscure, and the, the, the Vitruvian man didn't come out until 1487. This is like 1,400 years before we even started opening people up to see what was inside of them. We were just like haphazardly guessing. And, and so the experiences that she had at the hand of these physicians was probably brutal. And, and obviously it tells us she's broke, she's dealt with many physicians, and not only is she not better, she's worse. So she's in a really, really sad and, and frustrated state, obviously, with this disease. But furthermore, the, the question of, of unclean comes into it. And you might remember the word unclean when dealing with dietary laws or certain tasks uh, in the community that, you know, if you were dealing with a person who had died or you were dealing with the carcass of an animal that had been hunted, um, they were considered unclean. And only certain people were allowed to do those things. And if you did them, you were then unclean. And you had a, a whole set of things that you had to do to become clean. And usually there was a waiting period of X number of days. And anything you touched become unclean, any tools that you use, if I were unclean, this podium would be unclean and this water bottle would be unclean. Anything that I touch becomes unclean and they all have cleansing practices that they have to go through. It's a huge mess. And this woman has been classified as unclean for 12 years. This is her every day, her bed, her house, her clothes. She was a social, she was socially ostracized from this town. They knew her. They knew something was wrong with her. They didn't know why, but they wanted nothing to do with her. She was broke, she was hurting, she was suffering, and no one wanted anything to do with her. She literally would have had to walk through the streets screaming unclean, because if anyone touched her, they would become unclean. And she has the faith, she, she hears about this prophet, she has the faith, she believes he has the power to heal her, she goes up and touches his garment. Now again, if she touches something, it becomes unclean, and and. Clergy could not be unclean. That was part of the deal. They weren't allowed to handle bodies other than like their parents or their children. Like it was really strict laws about what they could and couldn't make themselves unclean about. And when it says she went before Jesus with fear and trembling, I believe she was worried that she was about to be charged with a crime. Uh, An unclean woman just forced her way through a crowd and touched a prophet. And the beautiful thing, of course, about this story is that 
that Jesus doesn't say anything about her unclean. The only thing that he says to her is, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He said you're clean. He said, I'm so clean that even your uncleanness can't, make, can't unclean me. I've made you clean. That's how good and how clean I am. And, and obviously the, the, the world that this woman just stepped out of, I can't imagine. I can't put my mind around what she experienced. But to go from being unclean for 12 years to being able to, to hug your family members, to sit at the table with them and dine, to, I mean, this woman's world just changed completely. And no one wanted anything to do with her. And that's something that's so amazing and practical about what Jesus did in these stories is he went after the ostracized. He went after the downtrodden, those that no one else wanted anything to do with. Those were the people that he was most interested in. Those were the people he was inviting to the table. And in every one of these miracles, Jesus deals with real, tangible issues. And he puts forth solutions that not only change their lifetimes, but it changes tomorrow for them. And and when, when you think about the church and the history of the church, at one time, the church was responsible for orphanages. They cared for the, the elderly and the widows. They, they fed the hungry. They worked soup lines and bread lines. The first hospitals ever founded were founded by churches. That's why we still have, you know, St. John's and, and some of these hospitals named after saints because the Catholic Church was the one that created them. And at some point, we became so disconnected from the people that we, we helped that the conditions in them were so deplorable that government said, we're going to have to federally fund something and put it in place because these people aren't being cared for anymore. They're not being adequately cared for, in our opinion. And that's people outside of the church. We had a moral obligation to care for these people, and we lost touch with that. And, and like I said, it all, it all goes back to these stories of Jesus. The, the practicality of how he approached these people and, and how he cared for them was awe-inspiring. And so, full disclosure, I don't do, I don't do social media. I don't really understand it. I don't think my thoughts are important enough that other people need to read them. I just don't. I don't get it. I don't like it. I don't care. Um, if you like it, that's totally fine. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. By any means, I'm enjoying not doing it. You might too. I don't know. But I'm not saying that you have to walk away from social media. But something that I hear a lot from social media and, and, and kind of that era of things is thoughts and prayers. And I don't want to discredit the power of prayer. We as a church just completed 21 days of prayer. I participated, some. I'm not going to pretend like I was there every day because I wasn't. I overslept a couple of times. But I 100% believe in the power of prayer. I truly do. And if you tell someone they're having a rough situation and you will pray for them, and you truly do, you put it on your list or, or whatever you have and you pray for them on a regular basis, that is something, 100%. But I feel like the concept of thoughts and prayers and changing the background of your profile picture is a a positive way to respond to something that you don't want to respond to. You don't want to get involved in it. And, and obviously there are hundreds of millions of problems out there. You, you can't go and, and actively participate in every problem that you see. There's no way. But every one of us has things that we come across that really, really touch us, that really mean something to us, that are important to us. And I believe that that is 100% what Jesus was doing in these stories. These were people that mattered to him, that really, really meant something to him. And he was touched by their, by their situations. And he chose to take action. And when the Bible calls us to be like Christ, 
I believe it's calling us to those actions as well. Um, in James chapter 2, um, I'm going to have it up on the screen so you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But in, in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, it, 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 talks about, it, it talks about faith and it talks about works. And, and it, it talks about how without works, faith is dead. It talks about the relationship between faith and works and how they're not separate entities. If, if someone tells you, I have faith, but you have works, tell them I will show them my faith by my works. The two of them are connected. They're not separate. You can't have faith and hope the best for someone. Oh, be warm and filled. I'm hoping the best for you. But if you're not willing to give them what they need, what good is it? It's dead. And, and I love this verse because I think it completely embodies what Jesus did in these stories. He took these people's lives into his hands and he cared enough to, to touch a, a greater need, such as sin, but he wanted to touch every day for them. He wanted to change their lives in a real and tangible way. And, and Jesus was absolutely a man of love and of faith. He was in every story. But he was a man of action. He took action. And I believe when, when we are called to be like Christ, we are called to that same level of action. That when those things that you see and read and hear that truly move you, that truly touch you, that is God speaking to you and saying, what, what can we do? to get involved with this? What practical steps can we take to help this situation? And Jesus wasn't just worried about the souls of the individuals that he was speaking to. He was worried about their frustrations and their pains. He was worried about every day. And, and I think that's so beautiful about this. And, and, and I, would, I would argue that anyone who, who believes themselves to be a, a person of Christ and a, a disciple of Christ that is not willing to get down into the trench and the muck with somebody and, and truly make sure that the needs that they have are met, they've missed some opportunities to be a representative of Christ at that point. That's what Jesus did. And I believe that's what we're called to do. And so what, what I would challenge you to do is, is, is to be doers and not just hearers only. That when you have these situations that come up, and again, there's too many. You could, you could try to solve problems 24-7, 365, and you would die, barely have touched the issues of the world. And, and obviously there, there are levels of, of, of action that you can take. I'm not saying you should go sell your house and move to Africa and try to solve the water crisis. But there are absolutely things that we can do day in and day out to touch people's lives. And and I believe that's what Jesus does in these stories, and I believe that's what he's called us to do. I truly believe that, that we as a, as a church, I, I, generation feels like the right word, but there's four or five generations here today. We as a modern church are called to reverse some of the negative traits that have been attributed to us over the years. And the odds are stacked. I won't, I won't deny that. But every relationship that you have, every non-believer that you know is a potential opportunity to reverse some of that, to show them that we are people of love. We are people of action. That's who Jesus was, and that's who he's called us to be. When you have those situations that rise up, when you see those articles and those stories that truly, truly touch your heart, that is God saying, what can we do? What tangible action can we take that could change this. It might be as simple as posting it up somewhere and trying to get more attention to it. It might be as, as dramatic as going somewhere. You know, Jaretta just came back from Africa. She had an amazing experience there, got to help a lot of people. You know, we have lots of mission trips that happen every year. These are tangible things that we can do. We get to meet real people and meet real needs and change their life to be like Christ in a very, very real and tangible way. And that's my challenge to you as a church, to us as a church. I'm a part of this too. Every day that we wake up and we say, 
how can I reverse some of the negative traits that people want to attribute me as a Christian, as a representative of Christ? Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you in prayer right now. I just thank you for every brother and sister here, God. I thank you for the shared mission that we have of loving your people, of touching people, of helping others. And, and I just pray that, that you would give us the faith and the, the hope and the love to, to love people truly, but that you give us action, that you would give us things that we can do, real things, tangible things, practical things, that we can touch lives and we can change them the way that Jesus did, the way that he loved the people around him. I pray that every person here would have an opportunity this week where they would see something that they're not involved in that they could be. And it doesn't matter how big or how little. Any step is forward motion. And I just pray that you would show us that. You would reveal that to us, that we would discern that voice in our heart and that we would see what it is that we could do and how we can help further your mission and further reverse the negativity that we as your people have gotten from the general public. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us. We hope that this episode made a difference in your life. If you would like more information on giving your life to Jesus, visit us on the web at grace417.com.